man, I was on mute. Uh, whew. I, I did something this morning that I probably shouldn't have done. I had, I, I just finished another two cups of coffee, so you guys were like, what, is he, what did he do? And uh, so if, if I'm like this, it's, that's, you, you get it, right? All right, so here we go. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, as Lisa said, a very warm welcome to the families that are here. And that means, and that means all the parents, just not the parents we haven't met or don't know very well, but even, you know, you parents back there. I see parents back there. I see my wife back there. I see Chris back there. Uh, parents, it's parents weekend, so here we go. Here we go. Uh, hey, parents, go give your, you know, give your son or daughter a big squeeze. Give, just give him a big squeeze. There you go. Give, yeah, Michelle, give Luke a big squeeze. Give Natalie a big squeeze. Luke, give Chris a big squeeze. Give him a big squeeze. He needs a big squeeze. Clay needs a big squeeze, too. There you go. There you go. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Mike Clunky. I think I really am the one and only, so I think that works. If you ever meet somebody named that, well, it's probably me. Um, I think, I think. Um, my wife, Michelle, is in the back. Two of my kids are here this morning. Uh, Michelle and I have been married going on 24 years. I know uh, that doesn't look like it. We have a daughter, uh, Jillian. She is a junior in college. Uh, Natalie's a senior in high school, and Luke is a, a, a freshman. And Luke walked in wearing a Buffalo Bills shirt, so I was really pumped to see that. Uh, so, so parents, that's just all that to say is that uh, we are in this together. We are in this together, me and you, us and you. So thank you for joining my support group this morning as we do this thing called parenting. No, I'm, I'm only kidding, somewhat, somewhat. Uh, but we are starting a new series uh, this morning and a new topic, and we're going to be looking at the question, what does the world need now? Today, during this time, what does the world need? And I'm not sure how you would answer that question, because uh, the, world, the world needs a lot of things. Uh, but back in 1965, Jackie DeShannon answered this very question like this. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. I think, Matt, you, you, we were talking about this, and you were at that concert, right, back then? <laughs> Uh, my, my favorite comment uh, on YouTube uh, about this song comes from somebody who goes by the name uh, Truman Capote. Uh, probably not the real Truman Capote because he died in 1984. Um, and this comment, as you can see, was from a year ago. Uh, well, Truman, he, he, said, he said this, what the world needs now is more of this sweet, sweet music. Yeah, to which uh, Stephen East, like a modern-day prophet, he replies, so true in these troubled days. But then Snooker B jumps in with an alternative thought. 
Well, he found, first, he found this song on YouTube, and he must have made an effort to at least listen to part of it. And right when he was about to click back to the BBC, he says, what the heck? I'm going to tell everyone what I think. What the world needs now is common sense with a capital C and a capital S. They play in the world. Well, <laughs> Major 007 is following this train of thought. And Major 007, he jumps in with this. He kind of takes a zig to snooker zag. He says, times, now, like, excuse the, you know, the, the English, right? But times where, we know, he, we know what he means. Times were, times were hard, but what they have planned for our children and grandchildren is metal slavery, cruel and evil. Now, I thought maybe he's talking about Metallica or ACDC. But, of course, Snooker B, he's aware of exactly who they are, and uh, we all hate them. And uh, Snooker, he understands the cruelty of mining precious metals, and so he's following Major 007, and so, so he responds, very true, and sadly, it's going to get worse. They will never see what's coming, and the children will pay the ultimate price. But right, right when you forget what we were talking about, down there at the bottom, Peter, Peter comes into the rescue, right? And so you got to love Peter because he brings us back to Jackie DeShannon and uh, in, in his best way, he does something that you didn't think actually could be done. Uh, he's, he's like a sleight of hand magician, but with words. See, he, he affirms the need for sweet love and he simultaneously walks over to today's music who's sipping lemonade at the bar and sucker punches him right in the gut. Yes, we need more sweet music like this, not the garbage of today. Today's music sucks big time. And so this is 60s love music inviting today's music into a cage fight. And we're all like, 60s, we didn't think you were like that. Like, we, didn't, we didn't think you had it in you. But when neither Truman or Stephen or Snooker or even Peter were looking in 1993 Hathaway, uh, like a master practitioner of Socratic dialogue. Uh, he answers Jackie with his own song. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Come on, Matt, dance. Go, Matt, go, Matt. Okay. Okay. All right. So what can we learn from this? Well, this is, <laughs> this is what happens when my brain does a deep dive on the YouTube. Right? That's what we learn from this. But the world needs lots of things. The answer's probably not going to be found in comments on YouTube, probably. Maybe. I don't know. Probably not. But the world needs humility. It needs to listen. The world needs courage. Servant leadership. Women and men who come alive. Hope. This morning, I'm not going to talk about sweet love I want to talk about 
goodness. I want to talk about what it is, why it's missing in the world, and how it transforms. I want to talk about what we do and what we don't mean by goodness, why the type of goodness I'm illustrating is lost in the world, and how goodness transforms your life, families, societies, cultures. So will you guys pray with me or listen along as I, as I pray here? Father in heaven, you are here and you desire to do good to us. God, would we use this time to hear a message from you about who you are? Lord, would it impact us? Would it transform our lives? Would it, God, would, would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? <laughs> That's so, so cute. I love listening to the chatter. <laughs> yeah, so, Lord, in this, in this time, in this space, um, Lord, would you see fit that your word would go out and do what it means to accomplish? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so how many of you kids or students here have had a parent uh, leave the house or maybe drop you off at the movies, uh, you know, with some friends, and they say, have fun, but, you know, Please be what? Safe. Did I hear safe? How many have, you know, hey, be good, right? Be, be good. Hey, I'm leaving you home alone. You'll be here for the, home alone for the next hour. Be good. And dad comes home, you know, or you come home from the movie, and the report is, I was good. And we know what that means. You didn't take out a Sharpie and write on the walls you didn't put your sister's favorite doll in the blender. You didn't take a BB gun and shoot the neighbor's cat, even though you really, really wanted to. You didn't do that. You didn't rob the concessions at the theater. But it also means that while your parents were out, you didn't pull the weeds for the elderly neighbor. You, you didn't prepare meals at a homeless shelter. You didn't tutor the neighbor kid in math. You didn't raise money for the family whose father just got laid off. Be good. So what do we mean by good? There's something in the scriptures that, that you'll see about goodness. I want you to see this. Listen. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to, the, thanks to the Lord. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. The Psalms pour out this language again and again. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for, your, uh, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. For the Lord is good 
His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Listen, God does good because God is good. Goodness, if it's anything at all, at, at first it's a, it has to be a description of God's essential character. That God is good means that he is not evil. It means that goodness is a part of his essence. It, it, just, it, it means that he does not act in deceitfulness. He's not devious. He loves truth. He does not pervert justice. He hates sin. He hates evil. God is good means that this is who he is. This is what he is like when we approach him. So the divine attribute of God, this divine attribute of goodness of God, it speaks first and foremost about who he is and secondarily about what he does. God does good because God is good. There's no outside measure of goodness or standard of goodness outside of God. God is the standard of goodness because it's who he is. And we see Jesus echoing these things in a scene in the gospel according to Mark where a rich man comes to Jesus. This is in Mark 10. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and, and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So the first thing to notice here is the man, he ran up to him and he kneels before Jesus. This means that he respected Jesus. He, he was showing honor to Jesus. And his real question, it was honest. It, it was real. What does he want? He wants eternal life. But he knows, listen, listen, he knows he's not entitled to it. So he asked, good teacher, what must I do? And then Jesus rebukes him. Jesus says, why do you call me good? And then he, what he does is he, he turns this man's gaze who's looking at Jesus, he turns his gaze to God. He says, listen, God alone is good. God's the good one. Here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not rejecting his own divinity. Jesus is not saying that he's not good. But what he is saying, what he's clearly communicating to this man and to you and me, that we do not, indeed we cannot, serve as the judge of what is truly good. So this man's good view of goodness was far too limited. He treated it as if goodness were a matter of personal achievement or willpower. Something that he might attain apart from God if he tried hard enough. So Jesus points us to the reality that, listen, God alone is good. If you want to understand goodness, you've got to look at who God is. That all goodness, it derives from him because he's the source of it. No one is good but God, and no one can be good apart from God. So real goodness, the kind of goodness the world needs, it doesn't come from our own effort our own definition of what is good, it has to derive, if goodness is substance, it has to derive itself from God who is good. He's the source. And God acts and does good out of this essential character. This means that real goodness in our lives, in humanity, is essentially a form of godness. 
The real goodness in our lives is essentially it's a form of godness. It is the life of someone who reflects the character of, of God in how they live. It's a moral reflection of, of someone who is like God in what she does. What he does is like God. But some of us are like the man who comes to Jesus. We, we want to know what good thing we must do to inherit eternal life. We figure that if there is a heaven, I don't want to miss out. We figure that our definition of goodness must get us somewhere. And goodness from this perspective, it might be things that God might call good, but at the heart, it's only self-serving. Listen, Jesus was good, and look where it got him. Deep down, we don't worship God. It's not an overflow of our heart that bends its knee to him. The man wanted to get to heaven, but he, listen, he missed the purpose of the life of Jesus. Jesus came, lived, and died, was resurrected to get you to a real physical eternity on a new recreated earth. That's true. The gospel, literally, good news, it is good news, is not just about eternity with God when you die. Yes, that is a part of it. Yes, Jesus brings tremendous peace in life. He brings incredible security to us. But the primary goal of the gospel is not to get into heaven, but to be transformed so that heaven gets into you. To change you. So that your life is like him. So the point of the good news is that God intends to transform us into the likeness of Christ. This means that we are to live like Christ would. We are to help like him. We are to love like him. And he, he does bring hope and healing to those places. And he desires to use us to bring hope and healing to a world that is desperate for true goodness. Many of us, though, we, we have an incomplete picture of the gospel. and We have an incomplete picture of how the gospel transforms See, because some of us think that uh, the goal of life is to know and believe the right things. Some of us think that, that the goal of, like, my, like, I just have to know and believe what's right. And this is crucial, but it's an incomplete picture. One of the common things that the world says, what you're going to hear out there, is that what the world needs is sufficient education. You see, the number one problem in the world is that people are insufficiently educated. And while education is great, knowledge is great, it lacks the power to transform the human heart. The world says that knowledge is what? What have you heard? You say, yell it out, yell it out. Power. Scripture says that some knowledge puffs up. That's what Scripture says. It inflates you. Makes you think that you hear all that. 
Listen, knowledge is a key that unlocks a door, but it has no power to transform you or change you. Let me illustrate it this way. If I had the knowledge to perform an appendectomy, an appendicitis, okay? Okay, you, you nursing students or nurses here, right? If I knew exactly where to cut, I have a scar right there because I had it done. If I knew exactly where to cut, if I knew all the major veins, if I knew all the blood vessels and even the, if I read about and had the knowledge of surgical practice but zero experience, I don't think any of you should allow me to perform the surgery. Knowledge is necessary, but it's what? Incomplete. Knowledge of God and the gospel doesn't mean that it has any effect on you and how you live. An atheist can tell me all about the Bible and have a great definition of faith and the gospel without ever encountering Jesus Christ. His knowledge doesn't change I can tell you what real faith is, but what you want to know is have you gotten to a place in your life where all you have left and are clinging to the promises of God? The story of transformation must be deeper than just what we know. Because if knowing the right things alone doesn't move us towards transformation, then it is truly an incomplete picture of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the life of Jesus and the narrative of the gospel is not about mere knowledge. It's not about behavior modification. It's not about what good thing must I do. It is all about transformation. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 15. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart, out of here, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. He's saying, listen, what is on the inside is most important. Knowledge is incomplete because it lacks the power, the ability to transform the heart. The corruption of the world stems from what's in here. The corruption of the world comes from the corruption of the heart. I heard someone say it this way, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. But Jesus came to transform the heart. Parents, you you know your kids. You know your kids. Students here, your parents know you better than you think they know you. Chances are that uh, not one of you here today, right? Not one of you here today, not one, has missed out on your parents loving and gushing over you. You may not have been present when that happened. Right, parents, in your hearts, you love your kids. When your son or daughter was born or, or, or when that gotcha day came and, you know, you adopted your, your, your child and everything was finalized, not one of you said, take him, take him back. Don't want, <laughs> don't want, I don't want the inconvenience. No, none of you did that. You're like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe this little one is mine, and who gave me this responsibility? This is crazy. Who's going to teach me to be a dad? What am I doing? I don't know how to do this. I was a new parent three times. Oh my gosh, parents, you were gushing over your kids. Students, your parents just gushed over you. Guys, when you held your son or daughter, 
you thought, she's mine. He's mine. And that baby or toddler did not a single thing for it, for you. They couldn't grocery shop. They could not take out the trash. They could not, even though I hear Esther back there giving incredible advice to Aaron, they could not give you any advice. And guess what? You didn't care because she's beautiful. He's beautiful. But you also know your kids. You know them. Let me illustrate what, what I mean. We were probably, Michelle and I were probably a couple years uh, into marriage, and uh, we were outside a restaurant, and we were waiting for a table when this mom was, was bringing her toddler, maybe a little bit older than Esther is back there, into the restaurant, up to the restaurant. And this mom was lovingly and calmly. Do you, you, parents, you guys remember when you go and you give an instruction to your kids or you're trying to help them and they resist and they don't want it, they do the... Like they suddenly have no shoulders, and you're like, <laughs> you're trying to pick them up, right? This mom was lovingly and, and uh, talking to her son, but also partly dragging him along the sidewalk, right? And I remember watching this happen in the parking lot, to the sidewalk, up the walk as his kid's getting, you know, dragged along. And as she gets to the door, she turns and she sees this smile on her face, because that little one was just so adorable, and he wasn't screaming or crying or throwing a, you know, a temper tantrum. He was just chattering. And it's like she read our mind. And she says, Michelle, what did she say? Exactly. <laughs> oh, he's cute. But he has a will. Don't we feel this? Man, I look at your faces and what I see is Beauty. I see God's handiwork and creation all over you. I look at the creation narrative and I know that God calls you so good. So good. I read in Ephesians 2.10 that you are his workmanship. You're his work of art. You are his masterpiece. The Greek is poema. You are, you are his, his hands are all over you. You are beautiful, but you have a will. And the story that we see playing out in the world of strife, a world of corruption, of power and oppression, is that although we are made in the image of God still, our will has turned against Him. In our will, we've rebelled against Him. We do not want to submit to Him. We do not want His goodness. It's what the Bible calls the flesh. And so we're surrounded by the narrative of human beauty and human destruction because of sin. This is the narrative that James Smith, is Smith in, his, in his book On the Road with St. Augustine, he identifies it when he says this about the story of Scripture. Beauty makes us say, wow. The narrative makes us say, whoa. And the picture that God gives us about the work of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ in you, is that it involves the heart being made new. If the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, this is where God is at work. Paul tells us about the trans this transformation in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, Therefore, if who? Anyone. Is what? In Christ. He is. She is 
a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, that's a word of going, oh my goodness, the new has come. And all of this is from the good thing that I did. All of this is because I tried harder. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, because in Christ, God gets to the heart of the problem. Your heart is made new. And Scripture talks about anyone who is found in Christ. God removes a heart of stone and gives them a soft heart. So real transformation begins when we turn away from mere knowledge of God and give Him permission to be Lord over our life, to change us and mold us into His likeness. And guys, listen, this is so countercultural. Godliness is a foreign object in the world. But the exchange of an old heart for one made new, it isn't something we do. It isn't something that happens when we get our act together. It happens the moment that we see the love of God poured out for us on a simple cross. When our hearts confess our self-righteousness and our self-goodness and receive God's goodness for us in his goodness of Jesus Christ. So ultimately, God's goodness, listen, the goodness of God is most vividly seen. God's own act of goodness to us is most vividly seen and experienced in his plan to redeem us from sin and our own brokenness. The goodness of God is displayed in his plan to restore us. This is what makes the gospel good news. In his goodness, God was moved to put himself forward in the person of Jesus Christ to be a perfect and blameless sacrifice so that we could be united with him. So that we can stand completely forgiven. 100% forgiven. Does it get better than that? No. And there begin a process of life transformation. And transformation is the heart of the gospel. We were made in the image and likeness of God. And here's the thing. We still bear the image of God formally, but we have lost his likeness. Transformation is God's restoration of us to be formed and made in the likeness of God that we are to do and to live like God would. In John's gospel, Jesus says it this way. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, <laughs> you can do nothing. Jesus is saying here, good root equals good fruit. That means if, if the heart, if the root, if your heart is changed, has there been real transformation? There will be real transformation. It's coming. But if transformation has started and your life is, is connected to Jesus, this is what we should expect. Good fruit. That God is in the process of making you 
conform to his likeness that you begin to exhibit and do and live as Jesus would. And God pictures the fruit of this transformation. He pictures the fruit of it this way in Galatians 5. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, walking with Jesus, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. One fruit, nine flavors. And the word for goodness here in the Greek is the feminine word agathosune. If you've ever met someone named Agatha, the only Agatha I think I know is Agatha Christie. Right? This is what her name means. It's, I think it's beautiful. This is a feminine word. It means good. But the word for goodness here that we see it's not merely an action. It means, more, it means more like a life of goodness. It means somebody is exhibiting an upright heart. It, it digs into goodness as, listen, it, the root here, the root and the fruit here. Inspired and powered by God, that's goodness. God's goodness can only be imitated, we can only be like him when it's a product of the Holy Spirit's work in our life of transforming us. It is the fruit of transformation done by Jesus alone. It's a reflection of a new life that's come through Christ. And if you were to describe the fruit of the Spirit that comes from new life in Christ, if you were to describe this saying, listen, this is what this is what Christians are to be like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I think even most atheists would say this is what the world needs. People who exhibit and have visible fruit of love. Who are patient. Who bring peace to places. Who are gentle and kind. Who exhibit goodness faithfulness, exhibit self-control. The world is dying for this, but they reject the source. This goodness that's lost in the world, it is lost in the world because goodness in our culture is being sold as a persona. We think that the change will happen in the world because someone is charismatic. So we'll elect them. We'll put our, chunk our change in with them. We, we forget even when we think about people who have charisma that the root word is charis, which means what? Some of you, grace. Let's put them in charge, though. Let's give them a voice. Let's give them a stage. And it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. Goodness is not about mere knowledge. It doesn't come from personality. Goodness comes from a person. And the world needs goodness. And authentic goodness is cultivated by truth, not influence. And, and parents here, I want to encourage you in your role. And I, I mean this sincerely. If you've never had a chance to reflect on what I'm about to say, and you want to talk to me more, let's talk. Mom, Dad, there are probably some things that you 
you've done or didn't do that have mildly or profoundly affected your kids. Some of us, we might know what it is and it keeps us awake at night. For some of us, we just, we know what it is and we dismiss it or we shame ourselves. We can't bear the thought of our bad parenting. And you may never truly know what it is that you did or didn't do that hurt or wounded or maybe left some scar tissue on your kids. But some of us, we know. And God is inviting you to confront it. And the good news, the good news is, is that we can. In the gospel, you can. Not so that you can be better. Not so that you can save face. Not so that you can sleep at night. And mom and dad, I don't know where you're at spiritually. I don't know what hang-ups are in your heart or, or what you walked in today carrying the burdens that you're carrying. But your child is here because um, they know Christ and his love. Or they are looking for something to fill the thirst for significance that's in their life. And maybe you're here and you might, I don't know, you might be suspicious of us. Or maybe you're here and Christ is your king. But regardless, you need to hear this. You need to hear this. Listen, parents, all, all the parents here, you are not the hero of the story. There is one hero of the story. It is not you. There's one hero in the story. And you need to let him move you in your life in such a way so that he can be the hero of theirs. Maybe you're here and you've just been trying so hard to do good to your kids and you've forgotten how to be good, that God's goodness can only be imitated when it's the product of the Holy Spirit's ministry in you. And you and I need to know what it means to cultivate goodness. Listen, Dad, Mom, Jesus is both the hero of your story and theirs. And you know what that means? Guys, you know what that means? Students, if you are sitting here and you have a a hurt or broken relationship with your, your folks. It means that with Christ, in Christ, because of the goodness of God and the gospel, that whatever feels lost, whatever feels lost, parents, whatever feels hopeless or ruined in Christ, it can be restored. In the gospel, there's nothing too far gone. There's nothing too far ruined that's out of re- reach of redemption and restoration. What is impossible with you is possible with God. It's possible. It's possible. So how do we live this goodness out? This goodness that I'm describing that comes from God alone, how do we live it out? How is goodness cultivated in our lives so that it moves from us into the world? From from, from our lives to our kids. From, From our lives out to our friends. How do we learn to walk in goodness and display goodness? Well, here's a couple of ways that I think if you put this into practice, you will be the likeness of God and hope to other people. You will offer what the world needs. How does goodness move from me in here out there first? I think it happens this way. When we are committed to listen. Listening is not just hearing. Listening is leaning into another story. You know, real listening, it involves warmth and empathy and respect. 
How do you feel when somebody really listens to you? Good. Do you feel respected, loved? Do you feel heard or validated when somebody listens to you? That doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything that you hear. Because what real listening does, it values the speaker as being somebody who's made in the image of God. And goodness is cultivated in a community where people lean in to listen. Goodness is cultivated when listening is genuine. When there's love and respect as we come to listen to people's stories. So how well do you listen to people? Are there people in your life, uh, on your floor or in your classes, that you have perhaps judged as not worthy of listening to? So you see their life, right? And you're like, I don't want to hear what's going on in the inside because I see the life that they live on the outside. Well, guess what? Sometimes those very people, they thank God, they make their way somehow to my house on Wednesday night. And you walk in and you're like, it's like, surprise. God is at work. How do you feel about listening now? Do you, do you make space to actively listen? Parents, is there space in your life for you to listen to how your parenting has shaped your young adult so that you can cling to the gospel together? That the act of listening with warmth and empathy and respect, it, listen, it does something amazing. It deepens your trust with somebody. It, it confers worth. It, 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 it says that you are valuable. It is truly good. So goodness is cultivated here when we listen to one another. Second, goodness grows when we're committed to telling the truth. And, and I know even saying this can be dangerous, right? <laughs> so let me frame it in in this community here. Are we a church that's committed to speaking the truth? Are you committed to telling the truth here? This isn't like, uh, you know, truth that you just kind of whip out and just try to destroy someone, right? Being committed to telling the truth, it means that we understand that there's a beauty and accountability. The scriptures say this, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. See, because relationally, truth is never a weapon. Truth spoken in love ought to do what? Give hope to the one who hears. Truth is not about destroying, just as Jesus, who embodied truth, was not about destroying. Truth in this space, in Cornerstone, it's a ladder that's dropped down into a pit of somebody who's in this hole that they find themselves in. And it says this simultaneously, hey, you're in a pit. <laughs> Why are you in a pit? I don't know fully. How'd you get there? I have some ideas. Here are my thoughts. This is the pit you are in, but here's a way out. Here's a way out. Goodness is cultivated here when we are truth tellers to one another. But not only here, speaking truth in a broader context of the world 
as it relates to Me Too and the gymnasts who testified against Larry Nassar, this is goodness at work. Why? Because divine goodness is always tethered to divine justice. Goodness abhors evil. So punishing evil is intrinsic to what it means for God to be good and just in his decision making. You see, goodness is cultivated when we speak the truth out of love for one another. And lastly, we can cultivate goodness through generosity. The more I understand God's goodness, the more I read about God's goodness to me and to the world, and as I read about how good he is, the more I see that God is so generous. And God's goodness seems to be displayed in this, just this incredible generosity. But it means being generous uh, more than just with finances. For, for us here who call Cornerstone home, are you generous with your time? So one way we can cultivate goodness through generosity is being generous with our time, or are we stingy? We keep to ourselves. Are you generous with your words? Sometimes the hardest thing to say is to be thanking someone for how they have blessed you and impacted you and encouraged you. Because it's vulnerable. It's showing your heart and what you really feel. Generosity can be displayed by offering grace and forgiveness. Is there a generous spirit here? A generous spirit of grace and forgiveness? Or are we quick to cancel people? Are you generous with making room for others to be at the table? When you're here, are you a part of meeting new people who you don't know? When you're in corner in the week, um, do, do, you, do you invite others to be a part of the conversation, showing them that they matter? Will you do this when 30 or 50 of new people show up, your friends show up to the Barnett's? Wouldn't that be, like, amazing? Like, just we just kind of greet them and are so generous with our time. We're generous. We give them a seat at the table. We listen to them. I hope so. I know you guys will do it. Like the hardest thing is to, like to go and be somewhere new and uh, nobody talks to you. That's really hard. But when we are committed to goodness throughout the week, it creates space for people to heal and have hope. And when someone does good to us not to get something, not to be the hero, not for themselves, then we are encouraged to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so a commitment in our lives to goodness and a commitment in this place to goodness, it holds out, listen, it holds out the nutrients that the world is starving for. Would you guys stand with me as I close in prayer? Father in heaven, as we lean into your word and come to you, God, we just remember your incredible goodness and generosity to us, undeserving in the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that one day when we meet you face to face, we will be with you and you, Ephesians 2, 7, tell us that you long to show us the riches of the kindness of God's grace in Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever because you are the one who is good.
So we lift our voice to you. Lord, would you transform our lives so that we would be more reflect the likeness of who you are. And my unending prayer is that all who are standing here with me, God, would they be present when you come in the fullness, Jesus, when you come in the fullness of your kingdom to judge the living and the dead, would they be with you because of your great love for them. In Christ's name we pray, amen.